Would you open your Bibles to Ecclesiastes once again? It's one of the Old Testament wisdom books, as they are sometimes referred to. And if you're using one of the Bibles from the seat rack in front of you, you can find Ecclesiastes 7 on page 556. Oops, I didn't always do that. You ever feel like this? That would be an encouragement, wouldn't it? Life is challenging, isn't it? And just about the time you feel like things are finding a bit of a predictable routine, stuff happens again and feel like it's turned upside down or a new scenario, new variable has been interjected and you think to yourself, really? We love Ecclesiastes in part because it's a realistic look at life under the sun. It's just another way of saying life on planet earth. I used this quotation in the very first sermon, I believe, in introducing the book of Ecclesiastes. One of my favorite authors and commentators said, think of Ecclesiastes as the only book of the Bible written on a Monday morning. And I think that could be tweaked a little bit to say written on a rainy Monday morning. Because in the course of this book, we do seem to drive in and out of dark and shadowy and dreary realities that we're faced with and sometimes contradictions that we can't fully explain. And why is this so? Solomon asks sometimes. And, or he'll say, I've observed this. And we all feel a little bit like, seriously? Can, can we just have chocolate and six million bucks and call it a day? And yet... Driving in and out of these dark and gloomy realities of life, we also burst into this brilliant sunlight where the author of this book, the preacher, as he actually refers to himself, if it is Solomon, that's an interesting thought, isn't it? Where the preacher leads us into the glorious light of who God is, of his great sovereignty, of his good purposes. He makes all things beautiful in its time, but it's his timeline, not ours, that he's operating on. It's his sovereign knowledge and power that he's exercising, and he's not taking cues or even suggestions from us as to how he ought to operate his world or run his universe. So there's a mingling of these difficult and inexplicable challenges and contradictions and experiences of life with the brilliant reality that there is a great God in heaven who not only, who not only runs the universe, but he actually cares about people like you and me. Well, we began in chapter 7 last week and, and uh, got about halfway through, and it's part of a larger narrative where Solomon's going through some challenging scenarios Prosperity isn't always a good thing, and having money won't solve all of your problems, despite what we may say to ourselves. Sometimes even the pain and sorrow we experience, like going to the house of mourning, is a better thing for us than to going to a party. 
So he walked us through a number of wisdom statements, and we came to verses 13 and 14 uh, in particular of chapter 7 and looked at uh, the, the fact that God's work is often mysterious, but he may be fully trusted. What's hard for us, and I remind you once again, is that we're in the middle of the story. We hope that it will end well, but sometimes the circumstances we look at don't point us in that direction. And some of you walked in today with a a great heaviness and saying, well, I'm not at all where I thought I would be at this point in my life. These aren't the circumstances that I had hoped and prayed for. Where is God? What is he doing? There may be more confusion in your soul than there actually is active hope in Jesus. But remind yourself, I'm in the middle of the story. And all of the stories that are included in the scriptures of ordinary saints like you and me really do come out to a place of blessing and glory and generous rescue and and salvation. That's why we sing, the Lord is my salvation. My IRA is not my salvation. You know, retaining my youthful strength and vigor is not my salvation. My family, my friends, my vocation. Salvation isn't found in any of those things. It's only found in the Lord. Now, God, thankfully, God offers you more than a hug, chocolates, even cold hard cash. He offers you so much more, and we actually want to read the second part of Ecclesiastes 7. So you follow along. I'm going to begin reading in verse 15. I'm going to read to the end of the chapter. This is the word of the Lord. The preacher writes, In my vain life I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. And let me insert this. That's a contradiction, right? I mean, God has promised elsewhere if you want to live long and, and, and see uh, blessed days, live godly. But it doesn't always work out that way. Solomon recognizes that. There are anomalies in life that, that are difficult for us to explain. Verse 16, be not overly righteous and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you should take hold of this, and from that withhold not your hand. For the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. Wisdom gives strength to the wise man, more than ten rulers who are in a city. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. All this I have tested by wisdom. I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which has been is far off and deep, very deep. Who can find it out? I turned my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom and the scheme of things and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. And I find something more bitter than death. The woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher. 
while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things, which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. One man among a thousand I found, but a woman among all these I have not found. See, this alone I found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. This is the word of our Lord. Let's pray together. Father, give us eyes to see. Give us light that we may understand. And give us great confidence and joy that we may live. And that we may see and believe and live in the way that you have first created us And though we lost it through the fall into sin, the Lord Jesus has lived the life we never could live and died the death we deserve to live that we might be set free from sin and darkness and the slavery of our souls. So would you set captives free right here in the next little bit? And would you cause us, Father, to know you're the living God, you're near And you're near to bless these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, See the first big point? Look at verse 15 again. Here's kind of an observation on life. There's a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness. And and though this is a contradiction, as I noted, I I want to tie it to verse 16. Now, I'm going to tell you, this is one of the challenges of of Ecclesiastes. There are multiple opinions. Actually, Josh Vinicky and I were able to attend a, a, a preaching workshop this past week. And one of the instructors who was there, and it was hands on, and we were actually in the book of Ecclesiastes. There's a little method to my madness. Uh, in all of that, very helpful. But one of, one of our instructors said, you know, if you pick up 10 commentaries on Ecclesiastes, you're going to get 12 opinions. And I thought, man, that, that is true. So there, there would be multiple opinions, but I'm going to choose one of those and connect verse 16 to verse 15. Because I think Solomon is, is leading us uh, very specifically to, to an important point here. Be not overly righteous and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? There's destruction in being overly righteous. And the implication here is that the righteous man who perished, verse 15, in his righteousness may have actually destroyed himself. Now, you say, well, how can you destroy yourself by being overly righteous or too wise? I mean, doesn't God say, be holy as I am holy? Doesn't the Lord say in the Gospels that God has called us to be perfect as he is perfect? And yes, those things are true. God is all about holiness. He's all about righteousness. But the keys to unlocking what the preacher is saying here in this text are in the two words, overly and too, T-O-O. You know, in Jesus' day, the embodiment of overly righteous and too wise was Pharisaism. They were prisoners to a system of rules and regulations and man-made traditions that had so tightly bound their consciences that they could not even walk through the local marketplace where they would physically rub shoulders with other people without believing they were spiritually defiled from that physical contact. And so part of the tradition that they developed was a practice of moral cleansing from that physical contact. 
It was never authorized in the Old Testament. It's just something that morphed through the years. And so as they returned from the marketplace, they would go through a series of ceremonial cleansings because of the sin and corruption and unrighteousness that had attached itself to their bodies as they walked through the world. I know it sounds kind of crazy for us, but this is actually what's going on when some of the scribes and Pharisees come to Jesus and say, why do your disciples eat with unwashed hands? And we need to remember that you know, we're not talking about the kind of hand washing that your mother imposed upon you when as an eight-year-old you came back in the house from one of your fort building projects in the backyard and, and were about to sit down at the dinner table and your mom would say, wash your hands. No, the scribes and Pharisees are upset with Jesus and the disciples because they didn't go through the approved process of ritual washing. And it's the kind of ritual that would make a surgeon preparing for an important operation blush. I mean, it included not only holy water, but they had to tip their hands and arms at certain angles, and if the water ran down one way and not the other, they had to repeat the process. It was madness. Well, that's some of what I think Solomon has in mind, even though the Pharisees hadn't come on the scene yet. There's always been this over-righteousness in the hearts of religious people. And so in the end of verse 16, he says, why should you destroy yourself? That kind of scrupulous religion and super-righteousness, as one author describes it, is deadly to the soul. You know, when Jesus was confronted by the scribes and Pharisees uh, about the unwashed hands, he actually went on to say, it's not what goes into a person that defiles him. I mean, it's good hygiene, wash your hands and clean out the junk from underneath your fingernails before you, you know, dig into the hamburger and fries. You might pick up, you know, some kind of illness that way and and physically have some issues, but you're not going to be spiritually corrupted by that. No, Jesus went on to say what comes out of a person is what defiles him. Do you see how he's saying sin is not an environmental issue? Sin is a soul issue. And he goes on, and this is recorded in Mark 7, 21, from within, that is out of the heart of a man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. Well, the preacher in Ecclesiastes recognizes that there is a sin issue, but a person who assumes all the responsibility for personal cleansing is never going to make it. And then he says, don't make yourself too wise. I think we should understand that simply as saying, do not think yourself as being more wise than you are, and certainly don't think yourself to be more wise than God himself is. You can't be more righteous than God, and you can't be more wise than God. But some of us try, don't we? Let me give you a New Testament example. Turn over to the letter to the Colossians. The letter to the Colossians was written by the Apostle Paul, and he's actually correcting some things that have crept into the church. And there were some there who were basically saying, hey, if you're really serious 
about being a follower of Jesus, you know, there's some extra stuff you need to do to demonstrate your commitment to Jesus. And Paul is addressing and correcting some of that. Now, in verse 20, he says, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, that's something that happens by faith when we turn from our sins and put our faith in Jesus Christ. Paul explains in other places that spiritually speaking, when you place your faith in Jesus Christ, you enter into the death that he died on the cross. The old you, in one sense, died with Jesus on the cross. And when he came out of the grave on that first resurrection Sunday, a new you was spiritually born. So we talk about being born again. It's true. It's amazing. But here are some people who are trying to add some things. And so again, returning to verse 20, Paul says, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? And here's a sampling of those regulations. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. And in our English Bibles, verse 22 is in parentheses, at least the first part of it, a word of explanation from Paul saying that these regulations refer to things that all perish as they are used. So it probably includes food and beverage and, and other tangible physical things, perishable items. Now the second half of verse 22, according to human precepts and teachings, it's not gospel teaching. It's not God's word that these things uh, are revealed in, but rather it is man-made stuff. Now look at verse 23, really important. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. On the surface, it looks like super-righteousness. It looks like serious commitment to God. But Paul's actually correcting it, saying, no, it's just not. Can I give you an example from my past? When I was much younger, I remember people actually stating, and, and people practiced this as well, that to actually eat in a restaurant where alcohol was served was sin. Not that you were ordering the alcohol, just that you were in the restaurant where there was alcohol available on the menu. I don't think that actually can be backed up from Scripture. Plenty of warnings about the use of alcohol. Drunkenness is sin. So is gluttony. A whole host of things that could potentially happen in a setting like that, and yet somebody, probably with good intentions, was, was fearful that maybe a family member or even personally uh, you know, would stumble into sin, and so they started building fences. That's exactly what the Pharisees did. They built fences in order to protect from committing actual sins, but then the fences became as authoritative as God's word. And it may appear to be wise, but it actually is not, and it only promotes self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but it actually has no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. I think when you piece multiple scriptures together, you begin to get a clear idea of the kind of thing that the preacher in Ecclesiastes is going after. You you will destroy yourself with that kind of over-righteousness. And did you know that you can actually indulge your flesh in two different ways? The first one that always comes to our mind is the unrestrained, unrighteous living, 
we call it immorality. That, that, that can happen, and we'll actually come to that in this passage in just a moment. But do you know the other way you can indulge your flesh is by giving yourself to an overly restrained, super righteous lifestyle that goes beyond what the scriptures say. This was helpful for me. Tim Keller, who is with the Lord now, preacher and author that God used in many, many ways in recent decades, states simply that legalism is far more than the conscious belief that I can be saved by my good works. It is a web of attitudes of heart and character. It is the thought that God's love for us is conditioned on something we can do, can be or do. It is the attitude that I offer certain things. I offer my ethical goodness, my relative avoidance of deliberate sin, my faithfulness to the Bible and the church. And these things support Christ's work and contribute to God's goodwill toward me. That's super righteousness. As if somehow the death of Jesus Christ and the power of his shed blood on the cross aren't quite enough to secure God's full and free and eternal forgiveness for you. So I look at this magnificent sacrifice of Christ and I go, and I just happen to be carrying a little cash today. That's so unusual for me. And I'm like, hey, Lord, I'm going to put 10 bucks in the pot just to make sure that the blood of Jesus Christ is fully supported. I just want you to know that I'm really serious about my forgiveness and salvation. You know, Lord, is that, is that going to help? I mean, that, that's not only outrageous, that's offensive. But do you think that God would accept some good work you would add to what his son did on the cross 2,000 years ago? Over-righteousness does. And so when we come to a passage like 1 Corinthians that says God has made his son to be wisdom and righteousness for sinners like us. Like, you're gonna correct that and go, well, I mean, Jesus gets us 80% of the way there. Bump it all the way up to 99.9%. Really? Are, are you and I gonna contribute something by our righteousness? Not to the finished work of Jesus. But you know, that's where many people in this present age, and even in this valley, live their lives. Forever agonizing over whether or not they are obedient enough, committed enough, supportive enough, chaste enough, generous enough, holy enough, honest enough, worthy enough. On this soul-destroying treadmill, it's part of the reason that Solomon says in verse 20, surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. I wonder what your perspective on sin is. First of all, what's your perspective on the sin of others? You know, one of the telltale, telltale signs that you might have swerved into the over-righteous ditch is if you frequently find yourself critical of other people who blow it. Well, they should know better. Well, that's not how they were brought up to live. I can't believe that he would say that. 
If you're truly stunned by the sin of others, you actually don't have a mature or biblical doctrine of sin. You also don't have a biblical or mature doctrine of humanity. God never excuses sin, but from chapter 3 of Genesis forward, he just puts it right out there. You want to know why your life is messed up? You want to know why this world is in the chaos and disorder? It's because we all sinned with Adam and Eve. We were there. Secondly, what is your perspective on your own sin? And you know, again, a telltale sign that you are swerving into the ditch of over-righteousness or super-righteousness is that you actually frequently make excuses for your sin. You shift the blame. Well, if you hadn't said that to me, then maybe I wouldn't have gotten angry. Or even sometimes we'll say, I know what I, 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 know what I did was wrong, but nobody's perfect. And we're not saying it in an Ecclesiastes 7.20 kind of way. We're actually using it as backdoor justification for what we did. We want to be let off the hook. And you know, when you're all about a, a, a super, maintaining a super righteous image, at the end of the day, you can't afford to let somebody else go, sinner. No, I'm not a sinner. You got to protect the image. You got to protect your standing. When Solomon dedicated the temple Part of his prayer that's recorded in 1 Kings 8.46 is there is no one who does not sin. And he was saying, if you read that beautiful prayer, that God, we, we dedicate this temple space, this hallowed ground, because we will need to come to you in faith, believing that the sacrificial system you have established well, will be the sign that we really can be fully forgiven for our sins. And that temple and the whole system of sacrifices pointed forward to the great and once for all sacrifice that Jesus would make. Why does God want you and me to admit our sin? Admitting our sin is what positions us for God's grace. You would think it would be something other than God's grace, but the humble admission of your sin is actually what position, positions you to receive grace and mercy to be the beneficiary of a remarkable outpouring of restoring rescuing love. I love the words of the psalmist in Psalm 130, verse 3. He states, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, that is, if if you should pull out your accounting books and, and show us the full recording of our sins, if you should keep that record, O Lord, who could stand in your presence? The answer is no one. I'm glad he didn't stop there. He continues writing, but with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. There's more than one way to draw people into fear. We just sang, oh, the goodness, the goodness of Jesus. And part of that goodness is his generous and free forgiveness. So you can destroy yourself by 
over-righteousness or super-righteousness. Go back to verse 17 in Ecclesiastes 7 and notice with me that deliberate wickedness will also destroy you. Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? Now, I want to tie this to verses 25 to 29 specifically, and again, it's a little bit of challenging, but I do see some terminology that is shared in these verses that I think helps us in this particular way. So look at verse 25 with me where, where the preacher, Solomon, says, I turned my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom and the scheme of things. We'll come back to that in just a moment, but you might want to underline the scheme of things. And to know, and now he takes hold of those two terms from verse 17 and builds on them, to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. Did you catch that? The wickedness of folly, and the word folly captures the idea of just acting, acting stupidly or rashly. Proverbs says foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. You look at your child sometimes and you're like, how can you be so stupid? Because he's a child. And foolishness was programmed in there. But wickedness is a greater kind of folly. And then the foolishness that is madness, actually both the the word folly and foolishness and madness. So those three words carry with it uh, as as part of the, the, the connotative meaning rashness. But it's rashness in the extreme. It's the kind of life choices and decisions that don't even make sense to the ordinary person. That's why we're talking about a deliberate wickedness. We're not talking about the occasional stumble where you're just like, man, I am such a knucklehead. I, I truly like, wasn't thinking. But this is the person who actually knows what he or she is doing and still goes forward with it. Knows that it's wicked and still says, oh, well. And look at verse 26, because the preacher's on a wisdom quest, so to speak, and the quest is to know the scheme or the structure, we might say, or the meaning of things. Verse 26, I find something more bitter than death, something very difficult to accept. And remember, he said a lot of stuff about death already. We're like, oh, wow, more bitter than all of that? Yeah, and what is it? The woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters. Now, in Solomon's writings in Proverbs, he certainly describes sexual immorality uh, and the adulterous woman, and that could be one of the options that he has in mind when he talks about the snares and nets and fetters, although I don't think it may be the strongest one. I'll get to the second one in just a moment. But if you've not read Proverbs 2, 16 through 19, or Proverbs 5, 4 through 14 recently, and there are more verses than that in Proverbs, you should, especially young men and old men alike. And ladies, you should be familiar with that as well. But there are women who use their sexuality to ensnare, to destroy, to overthrow. The adulterous woman hunts for the precious life, Solomon says. It's not just with this sin, but this is a prime example. We always think that we're in control of our sin, don't we? Like snake handlers. We think they'll never be bitten. It's foolish. It's madness. I think, though, what Solomon may actually have in mind uh, is not sexual immorality with an adulterous woman that becomes a snare and net and fetter. But I wonder if he might actually be writing, and we, if, if he is the author writing at the end of his life, where he looks back on how 
the 700 wives and 300 concubines that he entered into relationships with became his own spiritual snare as they led him into religious idolatry. And see, that, that's what gives us hope that he's not just, you know, broadly speaking uh, in a negative sense of all women everywhere when he says, you know, I looked and among a thousand couldn't find one. Well, if you take the thousand, the 700 wives and 300 concubines that he chose to bring into his harem and, and, and make them a part of his royal court, do you know what the scripture says in 1 Kings 11 verse 4? When Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God as was the heart of David his father. Oh, there's a different kind of snare and fetter. One author writes, Solomon's desire to compete with other oriental potentates may in large measure account for his building up a royal harem. He found that a harem did not provide the appropriate companion for man. How much better he would have been with one good wife, such as he himself speaks of in Ecclesiastes 9.9, which we'll get to in a few more weeks, and Proverbs 31. Oh, that he would have listened to his own Bible verses. Oh, that we would listen to the word of God. Well, that's actually an example of a man who, who developed his own scheme, his own device. It was commonly practiced. Nobody in the, in the ancient Near East of Solomon's day came into court to quarrel with him about his 700 wives and 300 concubines. It actually, culturally speaking, was just a marker of his spectacular power and majesty. But God had a different idea. And so we come to verse 29. See, this alone I found that God made man upright, literally straight. Do you know that at the point of creation, Adam and Eve were created with a, a straight soul, straight heart, straight spirit. You, you and I were born bent towards sin. That's the corrupting power of sin. That's why we speak of the depravity of human nature. Adam and Eve were not created that way initially. They chose, they, they willfully rebelled, had to step over the natural barriers of a straight, a straight heart, straight soul, straight mind. Solomon says, God made humanity upright, but they have sought out Many schemes. And oh, what a tragedy. That from that first moment of failure and rebellion against God, generation after generation after generation has sought out their own devices, invented their own plans, and not just for marriage, but for all of life, for work and vocation, for education and training. And the saga continues and the pattern continues even to this day. Walter Kaiser writes in his little commentary in Ecclesiastes, foolishness and sin are so much a part of humanity that only by submitting to the Lord in the fear of God will anyone be able to understand both the wisdom of God and the stupidity of wickedness. Well, let's go back to verse 18. Because Solomon states very plainly, 
The one who fears God shall come out from both of them. Let's talk about the fear of God for just a moment. We've mentioned this before, so we don't need to spend a long time here, but what we need to discern is that God is not teaching us to, to seek some kind of balance between righteousness and unrighteousness, as if he's saying, you know, don't get overly holy. When I, when I was in high school, ninth grade, I'm in the locker room, there was a senior who came in, and, and we, we were playing on the same soccer team. His name was Zach. I'll never forget this. He's a big, you know, strong guy, the kind I was hoping to become, you know, as a little scrawny ninth grader. And um, Zach sat down on the bench next to me. We're getting ready to, you know, go out for soccer practice. And he goes, Brooks, you're a good kid. And mind, mind you, I, we were in a Christian school. Brooks, you're a good kid. Don't take the spirituality stuff too seriously. Well, you know, he was so big that, I mean, he was intimidating. And he wasn't trying to be mean or bully me, but I... I didn't know what to say. I was stunned. I was, I was a little bit intimidated you know, by his presence. and Not that I agreed with it. Looking back on it, I wish I had said, oh, Zach, you should fall on your face before God today and repent of your hardness of heart or something like that. But I didn't. <laughs> he probably would have bent me in half like a pretzel. <laughs> is that what God is saying? You know, just, hey, don't, like, let's not push our righteousness over the top. No, we've already been over that. So he's not looking for you to find a balance between these two ditches. He's actually trying to set you on a straight and true road. And the road, we could describe it in another way, is the gospel. He actually wants to protect you from over-righteousness and over-wickedness because both are sin. And he calls you to live your life in his presence. And so we've defined the fear of God as living in the constant awareness of the presence of God. To fear God means to live in the constant awareness of his presence. But also look at verse 26, because there's a promise here. He who pleases God escapes this dangerous woman, whether through, who through her sexual immorality or her religious idolatry seeks to ensnare a man like Solomon. What's interesting is the terminology in the Hebrew for pleasing God actually has to do with with living in the presence of God in a way that he would say that's good. So both the fear of God and pleasing God come back to a, a, a personal awareness and commitment to living in the presence of God. We could say this in another way, of submitting yourself to his grand and divine scheme. You see, God had a plan from the very beginning. We're the ones who rebelled. And the man who lives his life before the face of God in humble obedience will not only escape the kind of snare that Solomon is describing here, but that man will experience the good things of life. So now we're backing up a little bit from the immediate text in front of us, and and I want to pull in some of those bright spots in the book of Ecclesiastes so far where God has said, your food, your drink, your work, your relationships, they're all gifts from me. I want you to live the good life, but you must must do it according to my scheme. And if you're intent on creating and following your own scheme, you're going to destroy yourself. It's inevitable. 
God in his kindness may delay the destruction for you, but it will come. You need far more than chocolate and $6 million. You and I need a savior. And so we do come to that place. Whose scheme will we choose? God made us upright initially, but we're the ones who are guilty of seeking our own way, seeking our own schemes. And, and I say this with love. I say this as one who has, who has thought through this even in my own case this week. What pain and frustration am I experiencing at the moment? And is that pain and frustration actually one of God's kind goads? Remember, we've talked about that. God prods us because he wants to move us from these places of danger to the places of blessing. From destruction to security. From emptiness to fullness. From darkness to light. Oh, he's so kind. Do you know, do you really know how much God loves you today? But if you and I continue to create and follow our own schemes, it is going to get harder and harder and harder. And there will come a day where there's no remedy. There's no longer a rescue available. I don't know when that is. Only God knows when that is, but if you're here under the sound of my voice in this assembly today, it's probably strong evidence that you haven't yet crossed that line, even though you may have a toe or two over. The pain and frustration may be God's good and kind goad or prod. Finally, God's redemptive scheme. Aren't you glad that he didn't just, you know, like say, oh, well, I created you straight. You guys messed it up. You're on your own now. Oh, the Bible tells us in the fullness of time, God sent forth his only begotten son. Made, um, I'm not, I just got it jumbled up in my head. Born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those like you and me who were under the curse of the law. And so God's redemptive scheme is to rescue you and me from both over-righteousness and over-wickedness and restore us to uprightness, but that only happens through Jesus. You can't work your way to that point. You can't pay off a, a debt you've created to get back to that point. You're not born into that point, you know, because you've, you, you happen to be, you know, part of a really godly heritage. No, you have to come by faith through Jesus to this God and Father. God's scheme or yours? Let's pray. Father, by the personal touch and authority of your Holy Spirit, Would you speak to each person here right now? You have been, but continue speaking. Convict, summon, console, soothe, save. I'm going to ask you to keep your heads bowed.
for a moment and remain in a spirit of prayer. Even I'm going to ask that you not look around at this moment either, but I, I wonder if there are those here today who would say, boy, I've worked really hard to build my own scheme. Been working it really hard too. And there is pain and frustration in my life right now that I realize is God's kind and loving go to move me out of my scheme and by faith into his. If that's a true expression of your heart, would you just call silently, call out to this great God, confess the over-righteousness or over-wickedness, both are sin. And if you will ask Him for His forgiveness and cleansing, He will give it. Even your prayer does not add to the work that Jesus already did for you. But my friend, will you forsake your scheme And will you run to God by faith today? There's a second invitation. There's some of you who have gotten careless. You're not actively living in the fear of God. You haven't really built your full framework that we would say you've created your own scheme, but you're introducing little pieces here and there. You're playing with deadly snakes in a manner of speaking. And God convicted your heart this morning to say, stop. Live your life in the active, conscious awareness of my presence. Live your life to please me. That means you can't live to please yourself first. That means you're not even going to live to please your kids or your spouse or an employer. You're going to live to please the God who created you first. Would you call upon the Lord and confess your carelessness and indifference to Him and consecrate yourself by faith to living in the fear of God? Would you do that right now? After we conclude our service, I'm going to remain down front, and if you'd like to have a word of prayer together or you would like to share more specific thoughts or if you have questions, if I can serve you in that way, it would be my great joy. And there are others here certainly who would love to open God's word and encourage you and pray with you and and help you find resolution to some of the great frustrations that you feel in your soul. My friend, just don't close your heart, close your Bible, close your little notebook, maybe you've been jotting some thoughts down and walk out of here with no more thought to what God is speaking to you today. Father, finish what you have begun according to your promise. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.